Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number five. My name's Dan Wood. I'm Ravi Abbott. And we are your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news, views and interviews. Now, uh, every week we bring you all the biggest stories in retro gaming and tech and an interview every week as well. Good one this week, Ravi. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've what, got. What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got some lemmings on the loose in the studio, and that's probably due to Tim Wright, who's our guest this week. Now, another one for the uh, the music heads this week, isn't it? Oh yeah, and he also did the sound for Wipeout. Amazing. <laughs> as far as like mid '90s games go, actually, I'd say that's on the PS1. That's probably the best soundtrack of any PS1 game. Wipeout. Totally, totally defined a generation. So uh, yeah, Tim's going to be on in around 35, 40 minutes from now. We'll have a chat to him all about making music on the Amiga of the PlayStation and lots more as well. And also, by the way, we've got to say thank you to everyone that's downloaded the podcast so far. We got a little surprise the other day when we looked at the uh, the iTunes technology podcast chart. Yeah, yeah, we we were pushing near the verge, actually, and we beat this week in tech. Sorry, yeah. Leo. <laughs> we were number 16 yeah. in the uh, the iTunes um, technology podcast chart. Which, Astonishing. That was our second episode, I think, wasn't it? We didn't actually find that until after the event. But, yeah, um, yeah. It, yeah. See, it seems a lot of people like John Hare. Yeah, so keep spreading the word. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Right then, on to this week's stories, um, and this is quite an interesting one. The BBC Micro is back. Yeah, yeah, this is this is mad. So Raspberry Pi were obviously doing the school kids, and they were originally wrong. <laughs> they were they were they were sending out machines and computers for school kids to kind of innovate with and start coding with. Well, it looks like. That BBC Micro is coming out, which is micro.bit. That's the difference, the dot bit. This is basically then, it's a development platform aimed at education that's um, backed by the BBC. Yes, and this is harking back to the days of the old original BBC Micros that actually probably gave birth to the British games industry because everyone was sitting there coding on their uh, computers at school and then took them home and... What's really interesting about this is as well, I mean, like, you know, most of these small bores, it's got an ARM CPU. But obviously, you know, the ARM company came out of Acorn, the company that were, you know, behind the original BBC Micro. So it's kind of gone full circle, really. Yeah. Yeah. This one's got lots of little features on it that are basically aimed to help kids learn. So they've got a accelerometer. You say it, Dad, I can't say it. (laughs) Accelerometer. (laughs) That's the one, yeah. Um, A magnometer as well, which is a kind of a built-in compass. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's got Bluetooth connectivity and stuff. So they were using weather stations and stuff with the Raspberry Pi. Maybe you could start doing different devices with this, robots, you know. I think the accelerometer is quite a good addition because um, obviously that's in most smartphones and it means stuff like virtual reality becomes possible. And Yeah, it's like a gyroscope, isn't yeah, it? Well, yeah, it's motion of, detection, yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, and it, it's also got buttons on it. You can turn it into a game controller. It says having the compass there. It sounds like this thing is actually optimised for making your own like VR tech, really, doesn't it? VR tech yeah. or, or, you know, going scouting. <laughs> You're kind of getting it a bit more high tech. Kids will never have to leave the house again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, they're trying to get this out as well to one million in school children and uh, they're giving these out for free as well to kids yeah and it's with this group called technology will save us now i don't know where they've came come from but um basically we we're talking about this diy gamer kit that mm. i bought last week and was soldering it's the same group of guys so they seem to be pu- really pushing this uh, kind of programming and building your own hardware well, we mentioned kids. when we had Paul Drury on the other week, we were talking about the fact that, um, you know, actually kids learning information technology at school was kind of off the curriculum for quite a while, but it is back on now. Yeah, literally my school lessons were CD-ROM. I was teaching the teacher some stuff and then he'd end up showing the class and I was like, wait a minute, I showed him that yesterday. <laughs> no. well, I, I think though for, you know, probably after we left school, I think, you know, the latter part of the 2000s, it was actually off the curriculum pretty much altogether. Really? It was kind of in- integrated with another part of school, like humanities or something. Or communications. But, yeah, well, it was yeah. all over the news about about two years ago that actually, you know, information technology and computer studies are now back on the national curriculum for mm. the first time since like 2001, 2002. Because I know there was a mass education program in India. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time, politicians were saying, why are you educating everyone? And now the IT industry is absolutely giant in India. And they, yeah. and they do it a lot cheaper than other places as mm-hmm. well. So it's... Uh, 
It's interesting. We can see what the future of British gaming will be from these kids playing with the micro bits. It's good to have, you know, because the British computer scene was so big back in the microcomputer you know, era, wasn't it? You know, obviously we had Sinclair, Acorn and all that. So the Raspberry Pi, I think, has really put us back on the map again. But yeah. with new projects like this, I mean, it's just great that all these kids are going to be dicking around with hardware at school and learning to program and... It's crazy. Building robots and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I remember a, a thing with the old Acorns and the old BBCs as well was that... Um, you would be able to communicate with robots quite well, mm-hmm. or moving arms and yeah, kind yeah. of electronics. It was. We had a. Do you remember a programming language called Logo? Logo, no. Yeah, we, we used that. I think on an Acorn Archimedes, and they actually. It was. It was kind of a a kid-friendly programming language, even easier than BASIC, really. It was like yeah. a lot of keywords. But we actually had, on the screen, you could control a thing they called the turtle, but we actually had a robotic, like, infrared turtle. So we'd program its, like, um, coordinates to go I'm, around I'm, the room. I've just remembered something we had as well, which was exactly like that. Mm-hmm. It was this kind of, like, one of those robot um, hoovers that you have. Yeah. But you could put a pencil in it. Yeah, and, and then draw. you had yeah, yeah draw on giant yeah. pieces of paper. That was great. I want to call it a Roomba, but obviously that's that's the Hoover, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it is something like that, or a Rover maybe, or something. Yeah, like it was but... like an early early version. Maybe someone could comment and inform us about that one <laughs> if they remember it. But there you go. So kids are going to be able to do all that again. Let's go back to school. Yeah. <laughs> now, next topic. Then this is quite interesting. If you're a fan of the Amiga CD32. Yeah, well, um, we covered the massive Indigo project, which was basically this machine that could play everything, Sega Saturn, Turbo Graphics, PlayStation games from the start. Well, the developers actually talked about it, because last time we mentioned it, we realized it was from A-Res Computers, which is an Amiga company. And he said, this is basically my idea for the next generation CD32. And he says it will run the CD game straight away from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And he says, I hope to extend the small niche we are living in. So he wants to bring more people into the CD32 world by making this multi-platform CD. So he says he's going to try and sell 500 CDs, which will allow him to invest in much more graphics, software and development time for the CD32. That's insane. So we, we did talk about this a couple of weeks ago. If you missed that episode, what it is basically is, you know, we've been mentioning a lot of these um, systems that can emulate older machines, but on, on a hardware level, kind of. Yeah. And uh, this one is for CD-ROM-based consoles. So you literally turn it on. It's, it's based on a Raspberry Pi, isn't it, this machine? I, uh, think, I think it is, yeah. So uh, you've got a DVD-ROM drive in there, though, and it will play PS1 games mm. and also um, Amiga CD32 titles. You put the disc in, it will just boot the games. But this guy's essentially saying then, if like a PS1 fan buys that, they're going to be kind of funding Amiga CD32 yeah, development. To- totally, which is amazing. But all, I, I love his model. He's obviously not in it for the profit. <laughs> he says also his next game will be after Project Lila, which is the project which he's calling this at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it will be a new project in the pipeline, which uh, will be a new game inspired by Alien Breed for... 68k and cd32 amigas wow okay this is a good way to get some money back into development though i mean obviously a lot of games that are released on the amiga are generally given away for free these days aren't Mm. they but if they can actually pay some developers to kind of do it on a commercial level like they used to like 20 years ago it's mad it's it's kind of like uh you know all these machines are running out so he's inventing new ones to increase the surplus you know well i get it'd be new games that would work on his platform as well wouldn't it yeah yeah yeah. so more games more interest exactly uh, speaking about the Amiga as well, now, have you heard of a, a, a project called the Plip Box? I've heard you mention it before, but it's totally gone over my head. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is. Well, this is our a Arduino-based device. Now, what it is, essentially, it allows you to connect classic Amigas via Ethernet to your local network, essentially. Now, this is actually a little adapter. It plugs in the parallel port on a classic Amiga. Okay. And it's got an Ethernet adapter on the back of it, so... Yeah, yeah. So they've they've customized the Arduino so mm-hmm. that it just does it direct through parallel. That's crazy. Yeah. So and it means that it doesn't really require much software overhead either. Mm-hmm. So you can run it like a one megabyte Amiga, and you know go on IRC or bulletin boards and all that on your Amiga five hundred. And there's me thinking I need all this complex stuff to uh, <laughs> set up my network. Is it fast? Uh, well, apparently it's obviously limited by the the speed of the Amiga's parallel port, but ah, yeah. it's quicker than you know a serial modem, for example. Well, I've I've done videos before on connecting stuff like the Amiga and the Commodore sixty four to the internet, and a lot of people think, oh yeah, it's kind of cool to do it. But then the biggest question you always get is, why bother? What can you do with it? Yeah, I, I saw your video on C sixty four online, and <laughs> a lot of BBS stuff. Yeah, uh, but it it looked quite complex that did, but this looks really easy. 
if you get it pre-made, I guess. Well, I think one of the good things about this is, you know, for example, why would you want to get an Amiga online? I think, you know, transferring software to the machine. Yeah. That's obviously, you know, you can do that via Ethernet if you, you download on one of your main PCs or, you know, you want to transfer files from your network over to the Amiga. But also uh, downloading software directly onto the Amiga itself as well. Like I've got my Amiga 4000 online and, you know, it does basic stuff like IRC does really well. Yeah. Um, even stuff like email and basic web surfing. But I think what I mainly use it for is just downloading like WHD load games. Yeah, I exactly. Mean, when I come round and I say, oh, have you seen this title? You can just type it in. Mm-hmm. FTP it over and it's simple. Yeah, you know. exactly. Rather than you know having to do it on floppy disks and split them in like to two files. Yeah, by that time you again. don't even want to see it. You know? <laughs> exactly. So I, I think there definitely is reasons why you would want to have your old machines online and to show off. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's good, like, you know. It just feels cool because I, I have my Morphos machine online, mm-hmm. which is kind of a modern version of the Amiga um, operating system. But that's all kind of built in, high end, and you know. Mm-hmm. It's good to get the classics online. You know, iBrowse, the older <laughs> web browser. <laughs> Which, you know, it, it's not the most capable browser in the world anymore. You know, it doesn't support CSS or anything like that. But for simple sites, it actually works quite well. I mean, my, my Amiga 4000 has got an 040, soon to be an 060, hopefully. Oh, thanks yes. to this uh, little adapter that we've just bought recently. Yep. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there definitely are reasons why you would want to connect these old machines online, whether it just be for kind of geeky novelty value well even just to connect up to mod archive if you've ever been on that it's the biggest FTP with modules on the world so you can just download any tunes if you like Amiga music yeah Yeah. get them all straight away now uh, BBC Radio 1 are doing a video game show yeah I think these are going to be our main rivals now then (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah they're doing the Radio 1 gaming show really originally titled Um, I remember they used to do stuff like Monday night or Sunday surgery, which was kind of a, a medical show. And they had all these strange little ones, but I never think they've delved into the world of gaming. I've never heard one on there, no. And it's quite interesting because last week we had uh, Mr. Uh, Biffo from, we're talking about, you know, Digitizer on Teletext, weren't yeah. we? Um, and we kind of did say last week, coincidentally, that there is no kind of mainstream platform for video games anymore then. Yeah, yeah, then this pops up, you know. <laughs> But yeah, I usually associate um, BBC Radio 4 mm-hmm. for doing more documentary, factual kind of based stuff. But this is interesting. And let's see what it will be like. It might be a kind of talking about YouTubers and Twitchers and all the latest stuff, or it might be a more academic uh, look at gaming. I think the BBC especially, I mean, now they're moving uh, BBC Three, the TV channel, onto online-only platforms, oh, yeah, aren't they? yeah, I forgot about that as well, so, yeah. Um, I think they are be kind of coming a bit more interested in online platforms as well, and obviously gaming is a massive part of that, isn't it? Yeah. And even on Radio 1, they've got a couple of... Um, Dan and Phil from YouTube, they do like a Sunday evening show on there. Oh, I did they even, did, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure if they still do, but I think they simulcast that on YouTube. I have to be honest, so. I haven't listened to Radio 1 since the uh, days of Chris Moore. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you might now if they've got this video game. Oh, show, yeah, 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 once a month they'll get my list. <laughs> <laughs> Friday the 11th of March it's going to be on apparently. Um, there's no time on this uh, article we're reading here, but we'll keep you posted. Could be quite an interesting listen. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. Have you ever thrown out something then regretted it? I've got a story for you. This is... Um, our first Amiga was an Amiga 2000, and my dad chucked it out. Said his line was, "Let's get rid of this old crap." <laughs> we had four four thousands at the time, so mm-hmm. yeah, we put it outside, and then I kind of tried to salvage it, but it'd been outside for three days in the rain. The elements had got to it. <laughs> yeah. oh, that poor thing. And then I told someone recently at an Amiga show with my dad standing next to me, and they just got the shock of their life. They were like, "What are you doing? Get him!" <laughs> yeah, guilt trip to a bit. When was this then? Oh, God, that must have been 92 or 93. Yeah, see, then, though, I mean, the Amiga 4000 was probably quite new then, and it was... Uh, yeah, we were dripping in 4000s, just trying yeah. to get rid of all the CRTs as well. You don't realise the value of them, though, at the time, yeah. and then, I mean, the Amiga... I've never had an Amiga 2000, and it is kind of the ugly machine of the range, isn't it? Well, well so. tragically, this was the one that they used for central television, which was oh, based right. in the local region, and they'd used it to do the weather on. 
So oh, they had a genlock in there, oh, and uh, no we used to do the weather in our living room. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> recreate it. no one plans ahead, though, do they? You don't think this is going to be, you know, I wish I had this in 20 years from now. Yeah, I know. I mean, I did, I did go through an era um, when I was kind of in my early 20s where I kind of got out of computers, really, hmm. and I got into, like, DJing, and I was at university and all that, and didn't really care all you that You turned much. cool, Dan. <laughs> briefly it. for about three years, yeah. <laughs> then got back to my nerdy roots again. Yeah. But um, I actually had a Commodore Plus 4, which was my first computer and that was compatible with the commodore 16 that was kind of a cut down model of it yeah but i um i bought a game off ebay and um because no one wanted commodore stuff like 10 years ago yeah the guy actually gave me a free commodore 16 with it for like five quid i got this game and a commodore 16 and it was boxed and everything and it was like pristine condition it didn't have a power supply though so i never actually got to test it out but the guy said i'm sure it works mm. so it hung around in like student digs for about two years and then when I moved out I was moving in my mate and all that and we didn't have much room so I was like oh I'll just throw it in the bin oh no man and I thought when I did it I threw it away and I thought this is going to come back and haunt me I, w- I wish I kept that one day and sure enough I kicked myself now for like 10 years thinking oh yeah. I wish I kept that machine however thanks to our good buddy Marvin um, who was one of the organisers of the Amiga 30 show in Amsterdam uh, he's actually found a stash of Commodore 16s uh, in a friend's attic <laughs> he found 10 of them and he sorted me out with a very nice boxed mint condition one so uh, well, well that's why I also think eBay's probably getting massive because people are buying all the stuff that they've chucked out or that they missed yeah. out when they were a kid the fact that like you know in 2005, six, whatever I got that for like free with a five pound game Right, wow. Now, I've looked since, and literally they go for like 60, 70 quid now, <laughs> and they're untested, so I thought, I've always regretted, because I don't know if you've seen the Commodore 16, it looks like a Commodore 64 bread bin model. Was it a cut-down model then? Yeah, yeah I mean, it yeah. was only 16K, and it ran yeah. um, Commodore Basic 3.5, and it had the TED chip rather than SID chip and all that, it wasn't compatible, really. Okay. Uh, but it, it just looks cool, it's kind of a black charcoal Commodore 64, it looks like. Nice. And a lot of 64 models actually use the 16K and keyboard to give them a, you know, like a, a jet black Commodore 64. So they look really cool, and I've got a VIC-20, and I've got a Commodore 64, but the 16 was kind of missing from my collection now, and I always kind of wanted one again, but I keep myself for so long over it, and uh, equilibrium is restored in the universe Yay. now. I have one. <laughs> you feel complete again. I do, so thank you, Marvin, and I'll never throw a Commodore machine out ever again. <laughs> now, Michael Jackson. Yes, Michael Jackson. He's a... Uh... It's interesting because there's been this rumor that's been going on throughout the video games world for a long, 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 long time, which mm-hmm. was uh, that Michael Jackson did music for Sonic 3. For Sonic the Hedgehog? Yeah, Sonic the Hedgehog. Now, the composers confirmed that he actually did do music for it. Now, this has been an urban legend, like, pretty much for, what, 20 years? Yeah, and because... It, it actually is true. Yeah, because people <laughs> have basically compared the tracks and they've been playing the Sonic tracks. You can hear it on YouTube along with the other tracks mm-hmm. and... You know, Stranger in Moscow and stuff like that is supposed to be the credits theme. <laughs> and it's, if you listen to it side by side, it does really sound kind of Jackson-y. Well, apparently this is it, yeah? I just found the YouTube link. Well, yeah, um, apparently Michael Jackson said he wasn't satisfied with the sound that was created from the Yamaha chip. Right, okay, there you go. Oh, you can hear that. Yeah, so you see the similarities. But that's why he didn't put his name onto it. Because he didn't want his name on the credits because he wasn't satisfied with the quality of the reproduction of the Yamaha chip. Maybe if he'd used a Paula, (laughs) (laughs) he would have been more satisfied. But Michael Jackson, he did a lot of stuff back then that was, you know, kind of outside of making his usual kind of music. Like, do you remember there was the Bart Simpson album? Like, the Simpsons do the blues, it was called. And I remember doing the Bartman. Michael Jackson did the music on that. Moonraker as well, the uh, movie and everything. He wasn't a stranger to doing kind of outside projects and stuff. uh, Yeah, but I think it was always that he wanted to have that high quality and uh, Sega couldn't deliver. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of stuff from the past that we've, uh, we finally get to see, 30-year-old Commodore 64 game has finally been released. <laughs> oh, God, they, they took their time. <laughs> now, uh, this is a game that was uh, made back in the uh, mid-80s, 1985, and it's called um, Little Knight Arthur. Okay. Now... Is that uh, Arthur? Uh, he's a little guy with goggles on. <laughs> I can see in the uh, picture. <laughs> I've not played the game yet, but apparently this guy... Uh, back in the mid-80s, he was a school kid like so many of those developers were back in the 8-bit days. Yeah. And he made this game, kind of hawked it around a lot of um, publishers, including Electronic Arts, who apparently were very interested in it. And he completed seven levels out of eight. Okay. However, no one eventually published the game and he kind of left it on the shelf. And now, 30 years later, he's finally finished level number eight. 
<laughs> wow. And you'd think if you've got EA interested, mm. you would finish that game, you know. Yeah, well, it's, uh, he said yeah, a game should be three things, Electronic Arts told me. Simple, hot and deep. So he kind of used their advice, but yeah, it, it didn't happen in the end. Yeah. Yeah, essentially, he's released this thing online now, so you can download it and actually for play free. this. Yeah, for free. So oh, wow. You can it try comes this, out in the end. It's a long-lost Commodore 64 game, so uh, obviously a link to that will be in the show notes if you want to download the D64 and give it a try. What is D64? D64, that's a, a disc format for the Commodore Oh, 64s. okay, like ADF. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, so uh, the Spectrum is back. Yes, the Spectrum indeed. And now, I don't know if you've heard of the Commodore Reloaded or the Amiga Reloaded. Mm-hmm. These are basically new boards, but with the old kind of style system in there, but with little upgrades. So, you know, they've got like an SD slot and stuff. And So these are swap-out boards, so you can put it in your old Commodore case. Yeah. Put the new board in there, and it's compatible with... Yeah, all and that's going to last, you know, a hell of a lot more years than your old one that's going to design in it. And this one's designed to fit in the 1648K, or the 48K Plus cases as well. So this is a, a Spectrum reboot, essentially, then? Yep, with RGB video out and uh, kind of nice integrated joystick interfaces and stuff. Oh, you haven't got to use a Kenston joystick and all that anymore. Uh, integrated <laughs> Kenston joystick interface. Oh, it's so compatible, so you can yeah. use the original joystick. Yeah. That's quite interesting. Stereo output as well. Yeah, so you basically put it inside your original case too. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And just upgrade it, and it's just yeah. a specky one to eight. That's why it's good, just specky. <laughs> now, I know that they're kind of really hard to make. Uh, the guy said... It takes five hours to assemble. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many he's going to be able to pump out of these. Is he making them all by hand, is he, then? Yeah. Okay. He's a cool actor. We did mention, you know, I've seen the last few episodes, there have been several kind of reboots of the the Specky recently. Mm. Seems to have a lot of attention again, the Spectrum, at the moment. Yeah, I think that's why he's probably doing it as well, to burst a bit of life back into it, because these remakes are in different cases. They're not not the original-style hardware, where this is like an upgrade of the original hardware, you know. To me, I think that always feels somewhat more authentic as well, having it in your, like, your original case and using your original keyboard and all that. Yeah, yeah, it just feels like you've uh, kind of got it refreshed or cleaned <laughs> at the... It's cool, though, because, I mean, obviously these machines are, they're not getting any younger now, are they? Um, no, no. You know, Specky, you're talking 30 years old, aren't you? So it's uh, having a machine that's likely, I mean, technology's come on a long way since... Definitely, and, and I guess you don't have to, you know, install the... SD card yourself or do mm. any soldering or anything it's just bang it in go <laughs> I'm going to dick around with your cassette player and all that anymore no right? no not at all <laughs> well your mp3 player you could probably hook up now <laughs> couldn't you now you've got some uh, NES controller news yeah it's a, it's a nice looking NES controller retro bluetooth game controller so I guess you can stick it on your iOS Android or your PC that's pretty cool, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, I'm looking at this now. It's, um, it sells for £26. Um, it doesn't look exactly like an NES controller. The button layout's the same, but it's a lot more rounded. It's a bit more like a SNES controller, isn't it, really? In, yeah. In terms of looks. I think it's probably because they don't have the rights. It's called the NES 30 Pro. But, you know, it's not your NES controller. It's, uh, there's no Nintendo branding on there at all. Yeah, to be fair, if you can name any technology company in the world who are so absolutely protective about their brand and their trademarks it's nintendo you can't even do youtube videos about nintendo games yeah. they pull them down I, i'm surprised that this has got that far actually yeah. by the look of it because it does look really snazzy <laughs> well yeah <laughs> i mean yeah it looks like a super nintendo shape but the buttons on it are the original nes layout aren't they yeah so yeah it's and it's bluetooth so you can connect it up to your pc or ra- raspberry pi if you've got yeah, a bluetooth interface it. so but i think that, that it's a nicer way to play games if you are going to do emulation though Definitely. Especially when you're playing console games using a keyboard or a touchscreen. Definitely. And as we always say about the train, even though we don't use the train that much, <laughs> it would be a great thing just to whip out your NES controller and just have a tablet there or something. Play Mario 3 on the train. Yeah. <laughs> now, Google have got some big news in um, artificial intelligence. Yeah, this is massive news. Ooh. And uh, we actually have a friend, um, RJ Michael, who is the director of Google Gaming who I did a whole interview with, about AI with. So, yeah, well, you know, RJ's uh, you know, one of the original Amiga guys, 3DO as well, now he works for Google. Yeah, and they are developing gaming kind of partners for games, but this is a different thing. This is, this is a new project, and the group's called DeepMind. Okay. And uh, they're the DeepMind division of Google, and they're basically <laughs> <laughs> cybernets, you know. But basically, in the 80s, 
they had the computer that beat the guy at chess. Oh, Kasparov and uh, Big Blue, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so chess has a, a certain amount of possibilities mm-hmm. and kind of choices that can happen. But with Go, it's like thousands upon thousands and thousands of times more than chess. This requires a, a lot higher brain and processing. Okay. And now the Go champion's been beat, I think, four or five times. Yeah, they, well, this yeah. says this guy here, European champion of the board game Go has now been beaten by uh, Google's AI. So this is a landmark, isn't it? In this is definitely, AI. yeah. This is like, yeah, Big Blue and Kasparov Mark II, but... Yeah, if you think of all the possibilities in the game of Go, like you said, you know, compared to chess. And it's interesting that they're using these kind of, these games as benchmarkers. Mm -hmm. So in the 80s, of course, before the chess, it was tic-tac-toe, yeah, which was, you know, your inspiration for uh, great films. Oh, I remember the movie War Games at the end. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) War Games was one. And, you know, that was kind of showing how AI could go crazy. I don't know what they'd do with Go now. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I remember in War Games, though, they used, um, like, their their mainframe machine played noughts and crosses to, like, basically figure out how to do nuclear war. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was it, yeah. And they kind of worked out that war was pointless at the end or something. But, yeah, this this (laughs) could really move on to something new. And uh, they were talking about kind of using AI assistance. So if you were, say, a doctor and you needed someone to do some processing or some kind of scientific results, Mm -hmm. just needed to do that, you'd use the AI system to speed up your work. Not replace it, but kind of... Compliment the human brain. Yeah, that's the one. I, for one, welcome our new uh, Google overlord. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, we actually live in the East Midlands in Nottingham, and um, this is some news that I think will interest everyone, though. Yeah, yeah. So, Nottingham, we've got a little scene going on here. We've mm-hmm. had uh, Free Radical Designs, which was uh, David Dope before, and mm-hmm. kind of um, Golden Eye, and they had a. Uh, Lots of old games and Homefronts being currently developed. Homefront 2 by, uh, I think it's Bullet Point Studios. And we've got the National Video Games Museum here as well. National Video Games Arcade, yeah. We've got quite a few games in development in Nottingham. And now, a new developer, Crackdown Studios, has come to join the Nottingham group. So we're actually getting a mini silicon, I don't know, a silicon dot. (laughs) (laughs) So on. They're obviously the guys behind Forza and Crackdown as well on the Xbox. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're opening a new studio. In Nottingham, it's quite yeah, Sumo Digital, yeah, and that's the one. And uh, you know, they say with Game City, the National Video Game Arcade, and local universities, uh, it's a thrilling opportunity to join mm-hmm. with Nottingham. And we have quite a few courses that teach games design here, actually. Well, there is quite a few little pockets of, like, you know, I think gaming industry centres popping up around the UK now. You know, Leeds, is, Leeds and Wakefield Wars are quite a good scene. Well, Cambridge, obviously. What's that one in London? We have the Silicon Roundabout. But they, it's not like your Silicon Valley. It's a roundabout or a Silicon Tree or something small, you know. Well, one step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, you know, if you are taking a visit to Nottingham, maybe to go to the uh, National Video Games Arcade, then there are a few developers in town now as well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe try and get some on our show. <laughs> yeah, we're just on your doorstep. <laughs> knocking on the door. Uh, now, this might cause a little bit of debate. I know uh, I've been reading Lemon 64, which is uh, the Commodore 64, um, the main forum where people talk okay. about Commodore 64 stuff. And there's been a bit of a debate going on there recently. What's your favourite video games controller slash joypad slash joystick? Have you got oh, a favourite? Oh, favourite. I, I kind of like the cheetah stick. I don't know if you saw that for the Atari. It was a massive fat one that had a big grip on it and kind of rubber sponges that you could stick on the side. Really nice micro switches. Um, Oh, you've got to have micro switches for a good joystick. Yeah, you can really hear it. (laughs) (laughs) If it doesn't click, I'm not interested. And it's got that Atari and Amiga switch at the bottom. I quite like that one. Yeah, because Cheetah actually made a few joysticks back then. Um, some of them were. I remember they did like a novelty range. They did like it was like Bart Simpson's head and a Terminator. Yeah, the Terminator head sticks. one. That was weird. That was Cheetah. <laughs> did, you ever, did you ever play with one of those? Yeah, yeah. It's really, really uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you literally need to. You can barely get your hand around it. It's that thick. Um, but also, I remember because Cheetah, there were there were a company that did do some innovative sticks back in the day. Yeah. Um, I've got one called the Bug. Have you ever used that? The bug, no. It's a tiny little joystick that you meant to use one-handed. Is that the green one with a tiny little um, stick on it? It's black, but yeah, it's got a tiny little stick on it. It's meant to resemble like a beetle or something. Okay. And I remember when that first came out, probably about 92, 93... 
my local video game shop. Um, I can see it here. It looks horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember everyone was raving about it there, like Amiga Format or like, you know, saying, oh, it's so good, it'll change how you game. And I actually saw a guy in my local video game shop and he'd always be playing Amiga games with it one-handed. Yeah. So he, he gripped like the two joystick buttons at the front with like his fingers, then used his thumb to control the joystick. Like a kind of power glovey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, everyone raved about it. I didn't actually own one until about three or four years ago. I got one off eBay and... I can't get to grips with it, but I know it's really got its fans. For me, if we're talking old school joysticks, it's got to be the zip stick. Yeah, the zip stick. That, that's a good one. But mm-hmm. I must admit, this is an awful thing, and I'm probably going to get slated for this, but I use the PSX interface for the Amiga, so I plug in a PlayStation <laughs> and use the analogs. It's really bad. Ravi, yeah. what are you like? <laughs> but I'm, I'm much better at platformers now. <laughs> I think, you know, using a PlayStation, at least you've got, joysticks kind of I think just using a D-pad's quite hard for Amiga games yeah because yeah. there are some that you know you try and play them on the CD32 with a, an actual pad and you know pressing up to jump I quite like those boomerang pads that you've got for the CD32 no oh, the honeybee honey, honey ones, ones. Yeah, yeah yeah that well, I've got two of those and they, they were competition pro um, designed them and, and the Mega Drive pad was quite nice yeah I, I mean to be fair you know if you the Mega Drive pad was nice but I think for joystick games I can't press up on a D-pad to jump. I, I think there is, you know, a lot to be said for a system and the design of a, a controller can really make or break it. I mean... <laughs> CD32. At, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the ones that came with the CD32, the, the actual bundled-in ones. Yeah. I didn't find them that uncomfortable, but I know they've got a bad reputation. Um, well, everyone holds them upside down at the beginning. Yeah, well, they're pointing yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. up, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose. Mm. But even like the Atari Jaguar controller, that, that's one that always gets slated, but I think a lot of people have never actually tried it. And, and it, also, I, th- I think with the uh, Jaguar controller as well, they have that little overlay graphic yeah and loads of people just left that off so it just looked like you had a load of numbers and it looked like some weird <laughs> ancient uh, numeric pad or yeah. something so call yeah. your mum when you lose it at <laughs> doom or something yeah. <laughs> but yeah I, th- I think you know for me having a different controller for a different platform is really important I, I love the Xbox One and uh, 360 controllers for modern games. But yeah. Even for PC gaming, I'll generally use an Xbox One controller. But for stuff like the Amiga, I think a zip stick is what I feel most comfortable with. I, but, think, um, I think with some games, you definitely need joysticks. Mm-hmm. But um, also, we, we're getting a whole, whole era here and a whole section that we've lost, which has been the guns. Uh, light guns and light stuff. guns, yeah, yeah, they're really good. They had them for the Amiga, and you know, NES. It was obviously Duck Hunt, a big thing. Mm-hmm. But then it got onto the PlayStation. They had Point Blank. They had a, yeah, yeah. Was it Virtua Cop Two and mm-hmm. stuff? And then Time as soon as that, yeah. as soon as CRT went, the technology went for light guns, and now you know they've got a Wii Zapper, but it's not the same, is it? I always remember talking light gun games. What was the one on the Super Nintendo? Like it's like a bazooka you put on your oh, shoulder. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that the was, NES bazooka. Yeah, my friend had one of those. They were awesome. And uh, the G Kong guns, those were the best for Time Crisis, where they had the recoil. <laughs> yeah, when you're a kid, you actually felt like yeah, like you actually know, fired a proper missile yeah. or something. Yeah. Oh, and Silent Scope as well. No, okay. uh, the arcade. If if you ever remember that, that used to have in the actual scope eye the periscope a little video all right okay now I don't think I've so, so you'd like look in the periscope and it would be like you were actually zoomed in and could sniper people through that see the arcades though, they often had a lot of like really exciting kind of way except they had to keep it you know interesting all the time didn't they yeah, yeah. Do, do you ever remember a thing that sega made um i think it was called the r360 no so this was kind of like a, a dome that you sat inside and there's a flight sim game in there Ah. And you pull back, and you actually—it was like a ride. And <laughs> put you, it you went the around, dome. yeah. Like, it, was, it was kind of like a, a drum, like a washing machine. You were basically <laughs> inside a washing machine, nice. and it spun you around, and it was Jesus. awesome. But I remember even like in like ninety-two, ninety-three, when that came out, you were talking like three quid to go on it at the seaside. Mm. I may have seen something like that at Sega World, but also they had these uh, big kind of things that you just strap into and a guy would spin it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we've kind of moved away from joy, joy pads and controllers, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think the point is it depends what system you're using. I think there's a the right controller that, you know, everyone's going to be comfortable yeah, with their own Yeah, and it depends on the game as well. Yeah. You know, whatever you're comfortable with. But the debate is raging on Lemon 64 at the moment. I think it's about 15 pages in now, I think. Oh, God, yeah. Maybe it will totally change by next week. (laughs) (laughs) It's Competition Pro versus the Zipstick Boys mainly, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the hardcores. See, the Competition Pro, I got... Do you remember they did a reboot of it, didn't they? Like a USB version about four or five years ago? Yeah, and they had a few gold editions and stuff like that. I bought a few of those, and they were micro-switched. But then I've got Sinsengs. I quite like the feel of those. I actually bought a few of the original ones um, off eBay, but... 
there's so many different variants of them. Some of them are like leaf switched. Some yeah. of them are micro switched. I never actually. I never had any competition pros. Yeah, I, I never did when I was a kid. Or zip sticks. I just had cheap ones or those Atari. You know those. Old plastic Atari ones. It was just literally a stick. Well, the twenty six hundred ones. Twenty six hundred. Okay. Yeah, I'd have them on Amiga games. They would work with anything, though. Yeah. They? Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so yeah, there was many uh, yeah wild and various sticks that came up back in the day, wasn't there? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, right. Well, that's uh, episode five wrapped up uh, from us. And now we're going to hand you over to uh, one for the the music fans this week. The absolute legend, Tim Wright. Tim Wright for the next 25 minutes on the Retro Hour. Thank you for listening, guys. You can download the podcast every Friday from the website, theretrohour.com, on a SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube. We're all over the place, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we're viral. And get us back in that iTunes chart again next week. Tell your yeah. friends. We'll catch you next week. Catch you next week. start at the beginning then so uh, what first got you into making music if you look at various stories that i've you know i've had interviews before and i've said oh yeah i started writing music when i was like three um i used to sing songs into a little portable cassette recorder and that's kind of true it wasn't my cassette recorder and i didn't re- realize i was being recorded oh. um, <laughs> it was actually my dad who um had heard me sing so he stuck a cassette recorder under the bed and, and yeah sent me to bed and uh, I think when I was, yeah, I was about, must have been about three. Uh, and my sister shared the same room. It was a huge room. Uh, she was two. And so she'd get me to sort of tell her stories and, and sing songs. And I'd just make them up and the lyrics were ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, for, for a three-year-old, they'd be like, ooh, yeah, baby. And all just stupid beatbox to it yeah Yeah, well I mean the thing that struck me I I listened to that about must have been about 10 years ago and there was a definite grasp of melody there and I thought it doesn't sound familiar either so I was clearly making it melodies I think that's yeah I mean that's just you know a kid being a kid but in terms of wanting to write music um, probably mucking about with my grandmother's piano she had like a classic upright piano um, as every Welsh house you know obviously did um, and it, well, any God-fearing Welsh house, you know, that went to chapel, they'd have a piano <laughs> in the front room, because that's what a lot of people don't realise. I'm actually Welsh. To the age of nine or ten, I was uh, I was taught in Welsh, right? Okay. The first language. Yeah, because so, they uh, teach that at schools now, don't they? It's uh, English and Welsh. Though it is compulsory. From, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it, it wasn't for. a... When did that come in? That's not not been in too long. The whole no, it's quite recently. I think it was in the last five, ten years. You know. Yeah, definitely. Bashing around on that piano, and you know, everybody going, oh, "For God's sake, stop it!" Because <laughs> it was literally sort of bashing around. And then my dad said, "Look, you can you can have a piano if you like." And I'm like, "What? Yeah, you can have a piano at home, but you've got to have piano lessons." Yeah, no, sod that. One of the main <laughs> kind of tunes, well, the main set of tunes that I remember you from initially was um the lemmings music when i was a kid this was one of the games that had a soundtrack that wasn't a violent game that was a puzzle game and it yeah. actually had songs that we could recognize which were you know public domain most of them were <laughs> <laughs> um actually it's funny you should say that i found out something uh recently about that i was looking at a a write-up on on the lemmings game and i don't know whether it was a, a recent write-up but it was the first time i'd seen it and they were quizzing uh, guys from DMA. They didn't mention me in the article per se, but they did say that, you know, when they finished creating the game, they wanted uh, cute melodies in the background. So let's do cute versions of the A-Team and Batman and all these sort of copyright tunes. Yeah. And it was just at that cusp where you couldn't do a copyright tune because, you know, computer games were starting to make money. So you couldn't get away with that kind of thing anymore. He, he did actually say in the article, whoever this was, I don't know whether it was Dave Jones, could have been, um, that how much is that doggy in the window? That was copyright, and apparently uh, Psygnosis did get sued for that one. No way. Um, Because that was one of the most memorable tunes as well, wasn't it, from the Lemmings? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. yeah. It was like a classic sort of, um, almost like art of noise version. (laughs) (laughs) How much is that doggy in the window? With It it did have car horns and stuff. But that was the, the irony was I was brought in to replace all of these copyright tunes at the last moment because, you know, they wanted to get the game out. So I thought, right, what can we do? I'll get stuff like green sleeves and, uh, you know, really sort of classic memorable tunes that have got to be out of copyright. 
I kind of also, I'd start off with a classic tune and then I'd meander into my own melody or something like that. And one of them was Oh Little Town of Bethlehem, uh, which I thought would be perfectly safe. It was about three or four years after the Amiga version had been out and all the other versions, you know, like Amstrad, Commodore 64. So they'd racked up quite a few sales. And the estate of the guy that, that wrote that tune kind of got in touch and said, yeah, I'd like some money, please. There's one thing that was released recently, which was the uh, pre-release Lemmings discs, and the music was totally different. So they, you know, they're calling it the Lost Lemmings soundtrack. So I oh, guess yeah. maybe that was before you might have been bought in, or there was. Yeah, well, it, one of the things they quoted was the A Team. So if there was like a, a version of that in there, I think or, there might be. Yeah, so. or Batman. You know, the classic. I think it worked really well on that game, though, because, uh, you know, you had these kind of songs that everybody knew, and you could kind of hum along to them, but really, you know, you're blowing up all these lemmings on the screen and stuff as well. It was uh, quite a good contrast, I thought. It did work well, really yeah, well. and they were also, like, cheesy versions, you know. They, mm-hmm. they certainly weren't attempting to be a, a, a true facsimile of that tune, um, and we couldn't really. You know, there was very little space for, for music samples. Yeah, I mean, it was the same with mine. I had to sort of reuse the, the samples, except towards the end, where they said, oh, we've got a bit more memory. And I'm like, oh, you're joking. And they said, yeah, but what we want to do is do uh, some sort of cheeky little versions of other Psygnosis games. So like uh, Menace. So Shadow of the Beast as well. There was yeah. a cheeky little version of that as well. Were, were uh, you a computer guy as well and as well as music? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm knocking on the door of 49 this year. So, you know, when, when I was in school, there weren't any computers, certainly in junior school. And it was only when I got to secondary school, it was like... Oh, we get to play with computers. This is going to be amazing. The BBC um, Micros, was it? Well, we had BBC Micros. Well, prior to the Micros, we had the Acorn Atoms. Right, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that we had, I think we had about five or six of those uh, and like a server version that sat in the corner. So, you know, we learned about Ethernet and that kind of thing. But prior to that, oh my God, yeah, it, we had a thing, a programming language called Cecil. You'd basically write out, it was kind of like basic, but not, not as, uh, you know, as involved. You'd write out your program on a piece of paper, and that would get literally posted off in the Royal Mail to uh, Kelsterton College, where a lady would sit and would type your program in. It would go onto punched card. I'm not, I'm not joking. Um, and the punched card would get fed into this mainframe, and then it, it would use a line printer to print the results, and then they'd mail those back to you. <laughs> So you'd have your computer lesson on a Monday, and by the following Monday, it should have been punched in, and you get your print back. And, you know, quite often when you first started, it would just say, error. <laughs> <laughs> it took a week to find out it didn't work. like, shit, <laughs> a whole week. <laughs> find out where the link in the chain has gone wrong. Oh, you know? <laughs> just, yeah, and, you know, and then you'd see the error, and you'd go, oh, no. And then we actually went to see uh, this, this whole outfit at Kelston College, um, and so we got to we, we met with the lady who punched the you know the cards and everything, and uh, he said as a special treat um, we're actually going to run your programs while you're here. And I was like, oh, this is just you know blew, it blew my mind. And there was one girl in our class and she'd written uh, her program, and she didn't know but she put an endless loop in. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen a line printer printing out. Yeah. It goes it's just like feet per second. Do you know what I mean through the. And, and her program ran, <laughs> and it just went and just slung this paper across the room. You know, it was just going hell for leather. And then eventually there was a, you know, there was a cutout after so many feet or so many forests of <laughs> ran out of paper. Cheetah, and picked up the paper, and it just said zero all the way down until we got to the very end, and it said one. <laughs> so uh, yeah, she wasn't uh, flavour of the month really. Did you get a computer at home shortly after then? Um, yeah, kind of around the time the BBC Micros came in. Uh, you know, I just pestered my dad. Uh, we had an Atari VCS at home, 2600. Um, and I said, look, I want the basic programming cartridge for the, for the console, uh, having never seen it, but just excited that, you know, it could do something. And then I think it was a friend of mine had it, and I took a look and thought, oh, God, that's bloody awful. And then for the time, it was probably a bit of fun, but, you know, having used a proper computer. So I said, I, I want a BBC Micro. And he went, oh, okay. And, you know, like... How much were they then? About 400 quid, something? About 600, I think there might have been. Was yeah, it six? Lot, I think, yeah. I mean, that's like a small car, you know, back in those days. Second-hand yeah. one. Um, but my dad was like, you know, I'm one of five. So he's like, okay, divide by five, you know, if they all have a go of it. So it was on order for ages, and it was just at the time, I don't know if you've seen that, uh, that film that they made, of a sort of like a reenactment of the times when Acorn was, uh, you know... Oh, um, 
Micro Men, is it? Micro Men, yeah, a fantastic program. I love that program. Great. Uh, full of nostalgia. Well, it was around that time where, in the, in that film, where this, you know, they were just selling out. There were just none in the country, and they were making them hand over fist. So my dad was at the computer shop, and he said, "Oh, that BBC Micro is going to be months." But I'm looking at a Vic Twenty. And you know, by that time, I'd, I'd studied them all. I knew which ones were which. And I went, uh, yeah, go on. I'll get that. Are you sure? And I, just thought, I just want a computer. Do you know what I mean? It's, I don't care which one I have. So, yeah. So the first real computer in the house was the VIC-20. But I was pretty pretty smart. You know, I said, I'll make sure you get the RAM pack as well. 16K, wasn't it, or something, the RAM pack? <laughs> oh, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It wasn't even that. It was, it had, I think it had three to start with, and we got a 3.5 RAM pack or something. Yeah. Even a kilobyte, yeah. it was a lot in those days there, wasn't it? You think, oh, God, yeah. A thousand yeah, bytes exactly. there, yeah. So what kind of stuff did you do on your VIC then? Mainly programming? Uh, yes. Although, talking about green sleeves, I did actually write green sleeves for it. And that was one thing I noticed about the VIC-20. You couldn't get, you know, the, the, the pitch really precise so by trial and error i was kind of trying to mathematically work out where the notes would be um and i was like that doesn't sound quite right and then you choose the number a bit higher and it was even worse and, and vice versa if you want a bit lower so i was quite chuffed with myself i said to my mum hey, i've just done this you know <laughs> oh right yeah that's really good so yeah that, that's the first song i ever kind of encoded into a computer just looking back on your kind of history of games that you've done music for and the Amiga particularly, um, the Amiga stuff, you've got a phenomenal amount of good tunes that you've made, you know, from Shadow of the Beast to Leander and, you know, Lemmings. There's also um, one thing I'd like to know about Agony as well, because yeah. uh, there was a bit of a, I don't know if it was a controversy or there was a bit of confusion over the title theme song with Agony. Um, well, at the time... I was, I was, you know, I was commissioned to write the, this piece of music, the title music, and given no real instruction, I don't think. Um, although, just to ask the name, the guy's name, Art and Magic, um, in a recent interview, he said that he suggested a to write piano music. Uh, Frank Sawyer, is that name? Frank Sawyer, yeah, he may well have done. I mean, you know, I've slept a lot since then, mm. um, and, and drunk a lot of whiskey. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, he quite possibly did suggest something a bit, you know, out of the ordinary. But I do remember thinking, you know, this is going to be, as near as damn it, a proper piece of, you know, piano music. Mm -hmm. Beg, borrow and steal from, from my experiences of doing uh, pianoforte mm -hmm. lessons. The ones that my dad said you had to have if you were going to go to piano. So eventually, I, you know, I relented when I was about seven and went, you know, I just want a piano. Yeah, I'll go for the lessons. So I did those to the age of 15, got up to grade five. I really didn't like classical music, but you know, that's what you had to play to to pass the exams. So there was that. There was a lot of that into put into the song, um, and I got the samples, the piano samples from a Kawai K1. So they weren't that brilliant. And, and when I sent it to Art and Magic, they, I think they'd had it about two or three days, and he was like, "Oh yeah, it's really great, but I've got some better piano samples if you'd like me to to replace them." And I said. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, if you've got better samples, that'd be fantastic. So he did that. I didn't hear it until it actually came out. You know, they sent me a copy of the game. I listened to the tune. I thought, oh, these, yeah, these samples are really good. And then a few of the notes started to sort of be in the wrong octave. So I was like, that's not right. Well, oh, dear, it's a bit late now. You know, it's out there. Um, it doesn't make the song any worse, you know, than, than the original version, but it just sounds odd to my ears. And I think the reason that it, does skip down an octave rather than being in the one it should be is because the Amiga can, can only play samples back at a certain speed and he wanted to play play them you know play the samples back a bit faster so that they sounded better quality so mm. when he tried you know if you tried to hit that higher note the Amiga literally couldn't do it so you had to go down an octave I think that's the reason why I think that's a continual kind of theme throughout your Amiga music that you know you use samples of real instruments so like Shadow of the Beast, you know, kind of pan pipes and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, horns well, it, on the lemmings, um, you know. It's... Yeah, it, when I first started composing music for the Amiga, it was a case of you've got the ST-XX, where XX is a number, sample discs that were doing the rounds. I believe there was only ST-01 originally. The yeah, soundtracker discs were a there, couple, yeah. weren't they? Soundtracker, yeah. And then, you know, the official ST-01, uh, which was samples from... Analog synthesizers, Yamaha DX100, and sorts of other typical places you might sample some decent sounds. And then there was STO2, 3, 4, 5, and if you go on the internet now, you know, there's, there's loads. 
but uh, it, it wasn't long before I thought, no, I've got to get uh, a decent sampler. So I spent a few quid on an average one, but there was a lot of background noise. Um, and then I, I thought, no, screw this, I'm going to get a really good one. I think it was by a company based in Australia. It was a big silver box. Okay. Uh, was it Audio... Audio, Gen- Audio Genic or something? I can't remember the name of it. Audio Master. That was okay, it. Yeah, it was yeah. Audio Master. And that was a really good quality sampler. So then it was just a thing of, well, I've got this great sampler. Where am I going to get samples from? Yeah, there was a friend of mine um, at the time. Um, and I used, we used to write music together anyway. And he, he had um, lots of conventional musical instruments like, you know, um, EMU samplers and uh, Korg. Oh, like the keyboards, M1, that kind of thing. I mean, that was that was the thing with the uh, with the Amiga was just trying to get the best samples you could, but then always fighting. You know, how much memory can I have? Sixty k. <laughs> well, how much room did you have on a disc averagely? Then was it was it quite a small amount? Um, yeah, it was about yeah about eight hundred k. So you were getting sort of less than a tenth of that for the sound. But you know, it, if if you had double disc or triple disc epics, then it was pretty good. Saw, uh, especially with Psygnosis being Psygnosis, you know, they'd throw in an extra disc just for an intro animation. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, yeah. So um, I noticed that you moved on to the Mega CD as well, so I guess more storage space would have meant bigger tunes. Briefly, yeah. It, it was very brief, my, my dabblings with the Mega CD. The thing with... With that, it, no, we didn't have more, more space. Um, I think it was some kind of limitation with the system that it was preferable if we could create, well, Amiga modules. That's all we were doing. We were writing it on the Amiga as we would write any other kind of Amiga tune. But, but it had to be less than 64K. Really? Um, wow. I don't know whether it was something to do with paged memory or something like that. Maybe that all the FMVs taking up so much room. <laughs> well, you, again, you've hit, hit nail on the head. Certainly the CD was being used for FMV playback you know so you'd have this rendered graphic that the the artist had created using a silicon graphics machine and that would take up all of the cd uh, data throughput you know playing that back so if it wasn't doing that it was you know generally spooling data in some way or other from the cd um so, so i guess the period of the uh, playstation and the pc would have been the one where you're getting into full kind of soundtracks cd audio essentially cd audio yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. As soon as it got to PlayStation, although we we did do some uh, some tracker music for some PlayStation games. What really early releases? <laughs> yeah, just like well, loading music, you know, menu music. Occasionally, that that would be some form of tracker based thing. Nine times out of ten, you actually got some CD audio. Well, I'd I'd say the biggest kind of title that you did, and the one that for me had a really massively strong cultural impact in gaming was Wipeout. We were saying on the last podcast it was the first time we went into clubs and cool people were playing like Playstations and they were playing, you know, game really changed it into a rave era. It grew it, up, didn't it? It yeah. did. But it, oh, I, yeah, yeah. It I was, also uh... think it was a demo connected as well because of the tunnels, it had that very kind of demo-y look. It was just a weird combination of everything coming together at the same time, I think. The developers at Psygnosis were growing up. You know, they were in the clubs, they were enjoying all the sort of things you can do in a club. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) So there was that whole kind of cult, that club culture, getting off your head and, and sort of you wanted to in some way continue that you know, when you came home or or do something beforehand that kind of put you in the mood. But I mean, I was I was completely uh, oblivious to all of that, if I'm 100% honest, because I'd got to, I think my first game for PlayStation was Crazy Ivan, um, doing the music and sound effects for that game. And that was, again, that was, <laughs> what had happened through all the Amiga kind of stuff, that was just me doing my thing. You know, there was no definitive style instruction you know, you will do it in this way. That did start around about the Shadow of the Beast era mm. um, because Martin Edmondson at, at Reflections had a very strong idea of what he wanted uh, and it had also already been kicked off by Dave Whittaker. Oh, sorry, David Whittaker. Yeah. <laughs> Don't call him Dave. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, but as we went into PlayStation, there was a definite requirement for a genre of music to fit each title. And, you know, the, the onus was on you to either create that music or... You know, they'd go somewhere else. And if you're in-house, that's a really uh, high-pressure position to be in. So for Crazy Ivan, yeah, I think we should have some kind of, like, robotic, industrial kind of, 
you know, feel to the music. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. And I go away and thinking, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> That's my remit, yeah. To, like, I've got to work you know, with that. Some kind of industrial dirge. And it's always going to have a flavour of Tim Wright or, you know, yeah. it, but but that's what I did. I sort of went away and thought, right, let's listen to some industrial, listen to Nine Inch, Nine Inch Nails and a few of the sort of, you know, people who were doing that similar kind of thing. Even a bit um, of Dark Wave or something. <laughs> well, well, all sorts and really stretching out, even Depeche Mode, you know, some of their stuff was a bit industrially. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then I sat down and I, I, I set up a shortwave radio and I just recorded hours of crap coming off the shortwave radio. Um, and I also recorded um, bits from films, you know, like Blade Runner and all that kind of thing, and just threw them all into the uh, Akai sampler and um, just triggered bits. And, you know, if you listen to the music, it is, there's a lot of shortwave radio stuff in there. That, that was Crazy Ivan. And then when it comes to Wipeout, they've already got a few tracks in there that they're playing, you know, sort of uh, what tracks they had there. Um, I don't think they had Firestarter at that point. Yeah, but it was, you know, it was of that ilk, you know, left field and all that sort of stuff. Was which, um, that one of the first games to include other soundtracks from other artists, I guess? Licensed tracks? Yeah. Um, well, well, Lemmings was obviously uh, one that you'd done with licensed tracks. Well, yeah. <laughs> licensed without, without permission, it, yeah. <laughs> retrospectively. I mean, in general, in the industry, it was fairly new-ish. I know that Jean-Michel Jarre, in a, an Amiga game, he'd had some of his music licensed. Mm. And um, Rick Wakeman... He did some music for Microcosm. Yeah, there uh, was John Fox for um, Bitmap Brothers Speedball as well, I remember. Yeah, exactly. So it, it wasn't a, wow, this is a new thing, um, but it certainly was new in terms of, you know, gr- uh, bands that were cool, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in culture, deigning to actually get involved with the geek of video games. So it was yeah. it, they, they were in on the ground floor of it becoming you know, cool. And did you notice that change at the time that gaming, I mean, for me, before the PlayStation, it was kind of like gaming was seen like it was for kids and then the PlayStation came out. It was, you know, people in the late teens and early 20s, really, wasn't it? Was that, was that something you spotted at the time? I was horrified. I mean, I saw some of the adverts, um, you know, for, for Wipeout, and um, it was just uh, just a bit scary, really, some of the some of the like, iconography and the graphics and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you're used to the classic... Um, how do we advertise a game? We show some of the screens, we play some of the music. It's basically what's the game about. But with this advertising, you know, the game wasn't shown. You've just got two teenagers with nosebleeds. Crazy. Mind you, the, um, the advertising for PlayStation, you know, that, that was kind of, at the same time, was going a bit weird. You mean, like the fifth place and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. It was it was really odd. I remember kind of Sega started doing some weird, crazy Pirate advertising. And yeah. Stuff, yeah, and then Sony did it right. I think. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, there was there was that scrabble to be cool. And I remember um, Edge magazine. It was that magazine was kind of like half of the industry and half of the general public. And it was sort of they wanted to be cool. They wanted the, what they were doing to be cool. They wanted. There was almost like a snobbery as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we work for PlayStation. We produce all these cool games and we're in Edge again this month and mm-hmm. check out the adverts in the cinema. It was... Uh, yeah, it, it was, was this sad. kind of like elite... Not elitism, but I'd say... No, just a different roll kind of... Different level of uh, gaming, you know. Yeah. We take it serious, serious gaming and... Oh, yeah, no smiling. Yeah. <laughs> Moving from the Amiga to the PlayStation, though, I mean, when you eventually did get CD audio, did did you find that you had a lot more freedom then? Or well, it was a bit terrifying. There was a slight cutover period um, with Mega CD, um, as you know, we've covered. Mm-hmm. And I remember the game we were doing was um, Sony Pictures did a, a film called No Escape with Ray Liotta, um, and you know, Google it. You know, it, it really didn't do very well at all. But it was it was you know meant for for great things. Um, they hoped it would do well, and a gang of people were sent down to London to Soho to watch the initial edit. You know, I was one of them, and um, you know we went in there, made suggestions and that kind of thing, and they sent us the orchestral score. Um, so I, ha- I had reference because we couldn't use the orchestral score per se in the game. It had to be rewritten. So um, you know, I spent a good. I would say a couple of months writing what was really my first ever classical, well, film-based score in orchestral music. Um, and also, I think there's a couple of tracks in there with some sort of synth lead guitar and lots of really sort of in-depth percussion. And it was just as well that happened because I think it would have been, 
you know, to that point, I was a games musician. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd written for, for computers, I'd written for some consoles, but it was always tracker-based music. So to suddenly have all this studio gear, which, you know, we, we ordered and, and it arrived, but it was baptism by fire because, you know, I'd, nev- I'd never used equipment like that before. Very briefly at my friend's house, but, you know, I had to get to grips with all the technology. And there's nobody there to mix it for you either or master it, produce it, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was quite a, quite a steep learning curve. But it all happened within a few years, didn't it? I mean, you know, 1992, you were doing like, uh, you know, Amiga Tracker stuff, Shadow of the Beast Lemmings. And then by 95, you're doing these tracks for Wipeout. It was always yes. like three or four years, really, wasn't it? It moved so quickly. It, it, yeah, it went really quickly. Uh, Mike Clark, who was the uh, Mike, and, Mike and Padre at, uh, at Cygnosis uh, in terms of the music department, uh, for quite some time before they started getting any other full-time musicians in, we were stalwarts for the, you know, for the Amiga. We had Amiga 1200s, and there was a product on there called Bars and Pipes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, and we we stuck with that. I stuck with that right until the point where I left Cygnosis and went on to form um, my own company with my brother, uh, Jester Interactive, and I still used Bars and Pipes there. So you know, I stuck with the Amiga for for music composition you know, all the way through, uh, you know, for quite some time. That was a favourite of the artist formerly known as Prince, wasn't it? Yeah, Bars and Pipes, I'd heard he'd... Uh, Did he? Oh, yeah, right. I'd heard he'd used it for a lot of his uh, Batman album. Uh, ah, right, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there was, there was nothing wrong with it, and it was perfectly adequate. Um, it had a 48-channel um, MIDI interface that you could get for it, which was more than enough to cope with, you know any kind of composition really but i mean obviously you couldn't use it for mastering audio or anything like that so we had macs for doing that apple mac uh, i think it was a mac quadra 650 that i used the size of um you know like a couple of breeze blocks <laughs> and um all i remember is all i used it for was was mastering audio and even then you know you'd get the little bomb all you're doing is just you're just recording my audio and you're still crashing so i really it really didn't endear me to uh you know to apple yeah you appreciate the amiga then i bet yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> nowadays i see there's something called chill out that's come and uh, i guess this is something harking back to your old days well if we go back a couple of years um there's the slipstream albums that i did Slipstream 1 and 2, and the idea behind those albums was to take the original music from Wipeout, uh, Wipeout 2097, Wipeout Pure, basically all, all the Wipeout products that I'd contributed music to, and revisit them again and go, look, they were written in 1995, 96, 97, that kind of era. Uh, well, actually, I think Wipeout Pure was a few, you know, a few years after that, obviously. But even those early tracks, I had sort of by the seat of my pants knowledge of what the hell I was doing, um, you know, with all the equipment, the samples, the, the just production techniques and all that kind of thing, mastering. So let's revisit those, um, remaster them, re-EQ them, do it all in 64-bit. And, uh, yeah, so I did that, and that, that proved quite popular. You know, there was a central repository then for people to get at the Wipeout music as kind of I hoped it should have sounded back then. So I've I'm not been shy of going back and kind of revisiting those. I've done remixes of some of my tracks, um, you know, from, from those days before now. I was coming home one day and I was sort of humming this tune and I was I recognise that tune. I think it's one of mine. I was, well, I know I've, I've written quite a few tunes. So I was like, what is it? What is it? What is it? And then I went, oh, God, yeah. I think it was Opera Teak, which is one of the original Wipeout tunes. Yeah. But I was singing it a lot slower, you know, sort of... It didn't like chilled out kind of fashion, and I thought that's an idea. I wonder what what that would sound like. You know, sl- slowed down a sort of more ambient mix of it. So I did, and I had to play around with it. And I thought I could do uh, in this style. That would be uh, that'd be quite something. And I've always wanted to actually produce one of a proper CD because up until now I've been on CDs as a featured artist, but I've never actually produced my own CD. So right, let's go to town on this. Squeeze as many tracks as I can on there. You know, of a reasonable quality because obviously the ambient versions are going to be a bit longer. So I think I'm going to do about 14, maybe more. And um, also sort of, you know, go to town, get, get some nice graphics on there. Mm. I contacted one of the artists that created the, um, a lot of the ship artwork and models and stuff for, for Wipeout um, back in the day, and, and he was like, oh, yeah, that's good fun. Why, what do you want to do? I said, I want a poster um, to go with the album, a Wipeout ship, and, you know, not an actual Wipeout ship, but, you know, something of that kind of ilk. 
Um, Sony and I get on quite well, and they own the copyright for Wipeout, but we, we, uh, we share the copyright in the music. I suppose sensible at the time when I left Psygnosis back in the late 90s, uh, I had a chat with the legal guy there, and I said, look, a lot of people want access to my music. A lot of it's out there anyway on YouTube and so on. I'd like joint ownership. So obviously you get to keep all the music I've written while I'm here and use it for what you want, but I want to be able to do that too. Um, so he was like, mm, let me think about it. And the next day he got an email saying, yeah, fine, this, consider this legally binding. Yeah, so, so that's, that's how I've managed to, to do all this sort of remixing of, of my past works. And um, this is the latest, uh, <laughs> the latest iteration. It's just, it, at first I wasn't sure whether it would work, but I've written sort of like six or seven of the tracks now. Um, and I'm happy with them. I've, I've put a few snippets out there on SoundCloud and YouTube, and they've they've got a good uh, good response. So, uh, well, I yeah. was uh, wondering when it's actually out as well, because I can see you can pre-order it. Yeah, the, the pre-order um, and originally the pre-order was was ending sort of late December last year. People could get it for themselves for Christmas or for you know friends and whatnot. Um, but I got some emails from people saying look i've got no more money <laughs> i've spent up for christmas um but i'll get some granny money uh in the new year or you know when i get my paycheck at the end of jan i'd love to order this that first so, one so <laughs> yeah well so I, I just basically said yeah no worries so we extended the pre-order to um well it's coming up now isn't it 31st of jan um so people can get on board until then and then the music should be finished late feb as should the artwork, the poster and everything. Then we go into manufacture and then we should get everything shipped out by the end of March. Amazing. Well, listen, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating talking to you. No, great. The pleasure's all mine. It's always nice to you know, talk about the past and, uh, and also the future. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.